You're listening to Mysterious Mountains, a production of the West Virginia Humanities Council, where together we explore the imaginary landscape of West Virginia through genre fiction and folklore. Since this is the very first episode of Mysterious Mountains, we'll do things a little bit differently. You can join me after the story for a short introduction to what you can look forward to in the first season of the show. And for those who like to know what's going on behind the scenes, we'll take a brief look into the somewhat tragic life of the man who wrote this season's stories. Lawyer, polo player, country aristocrat, but most of all, writer, Melville Davison Post. But first, the mystery. West Virginia Humanities Council presents Uncle Abner by Melville Davison Post. The House of the Dead Man. Read by Kyle Warmack. We were on our way to the Smallwood place, Abner and I. It was early in the morning, and I thought we were the first on the road, but at the three forks where the Lost Creek Turnpike trails down from the mountains, a horse had turned in before us. It was a morning out of paradise, crisp and bright. The spider webs glistened on the fence rails, the timber cracked. The ragweed was dusted with silver. The sun was moving upward from behind the world. I could have whistled out of sheer joy in being alive on this October morning, and the horse under me danced. But Abner rode looking down his nose. He was always silent when he had this trip to make, and he had a reason for it. The pasture land that we were going on did not belong to us. It had been owned by the sheriff, Asbury Smallwood. In those days the sheriff collected the county taxes— one night the sheriff's house had been entered, burned over his head, and a large sum of the county revenues carried off. No one ever found a trace of those who had done this deed. The sheriff was ruined. He had given up his lands and moved to a neighboring county. His bondsmen had been forced to meet the loss. My father had been one of them. But it was not the loss to my father that bothered Abner. "'The thing does not hurt you, Rufus,' he said." but it cripples Elnathan Stone, and it breaks Adam Greathouse. Stone was a grazier with heavy debts, and Greathouse was a little farmer. I remember how my father chaffed Abner when he paid his portion of this loss. The Lord gave, he said, and the Lord hath taken away, eh, Abner? But Rufus, replied Abner, did the Lord take? We must be sure of that. There are others who take. It was clear what Abner meant. If the Lord took, he would be resigned to it but if another took, he would follow with a weapon in his hand and recover what had been taken. Abner's god was an exacting overlord, and his requisitions were to be met with equanimity. But he did not go halves with thieves, and he issued no letters of mark. When the sheriff failed, Abner had put cattle on the land in an effort to make what he could for the bondsmen. It was good grazing land, but it was watered by springs, and we had to watch them. A beef steer does not grow fat without plenty of water." We went every week to give the cattle salt and to watch the springs. As we rode, I presently noticed that Abner was looking down at the horse track. 
and then I saw what I had not noticed before, that there were three horse-tracks in the road, two going our way and one returning, but only one of the tracks was fresh. Finally, Abner pulled up his big chestnut. We were passing the old burned house. The crumbled foundations and the blasted trees stood at the end of a lane. There had once been a gate before the house at the end of this lane, but it was now nailed up. The horse going before us had entered this lane for a few steps, then turned back into the road. Abner did not speak. He looked at the track for a moment and then rode on. Presently we came to the bars leading from the road into the pasture. The horse had stopped here, and his rider had got out of the saddle and let down the bars. One could see where the horse had gone through, and the footprints of the rider were visible in the soft clay. The old horse track also went in and came out at these bars. Abner examined the man's footprints with what I thought was an excess of interest. Travelers were always going through one's land, and provided they closed the doors behind them, what did it matter? Abner seemed concerned about this traveler, however. When we had entered the field, he sat for some time in the saddle, and then, instead of going to the hills where the springs were, he rode up the valley toward a piece of woods. There was a little rivulet threading this valley, and he watched it as he rode. Finally, just before the rivulet entered the woods, he stopped and got down out of his saddle. When I came up, he was looking at a track on the edge of the little stream. It was the footprint of a man, still muddy where the water had run into it. Abner stood on the bank beside the rivulet, and for a good while I could not imagine what he was waiting for. Then, as he watched the track, I understood. He was waiting for the muddy water to clear so he could see the imprint of the man's foot. "'Uncle Abner,' I said, "'what do you care about who goes through the field?' "'Ordinarily I do not care,' he said, "'if the man lays up the fence behind him. But there is something out of the ordinary about this thing.' The man who crossed there on foot is the same man who came in on the horse. The footprints here and at the bar show the same plate on the boot heel. He rode a horse that had been here before today, because it remembered the lane and tried to turn in there. Moreover, the man did not wish to be seen, because he came early, hid the horse, and went on foot back toward the burned house. How do you know that he had hidden the horse, Uncle Abner? For answer, he beckoned to me and we rode into the woods. The leaves were damp, and the horses made no sound. In a few moments Abner stopped and pointed through the beech trees, and I saw a bay horse tied to a sapling. The horse stood with his legs wide apart and his head down. The horse is asleep, said Abner. It has been ridden all night. We must find the rider. I was now alive with interest. The old story of the robbery floated before me in romantic colors. What innocent person would come here by stealth, ride his horse all night, and then hide it in the woods? Moreover, as Abner said, this horse had been to the sheriff's house before today, and it had been there before the house was burned, because it had started to enter the old lane and it had been turned back by its rider. We were all familiar with such striking examples of memory in horses. A horse, having once gone over a road and entered at a certain gate, will follow that road on a second trip and again enter that gate. Then I remembered the old horse track that had preceded this one, and the solution of this thing appeared before me. The story had gone about that two men had robbed the sheriff, and these evidences tallied with that story. Two men had ridden into that pasture. That one track was older was because one of the men had gone to tell the other to meet him here, had ridden back, and the other had followed. The horse of the first robber was doubtless concealed deeper in the wood. And why had they returned? That was clear enough. 
They had concealed the booty until now and had just come back for it. The thrill of adventure tingled in my blood. We were on the trail of the robbers and they could not easily escape us. The one who had ridden this horse could not be far away, since his track in the brook was muddy when we found it. But why had he crossed the brook in the direction of the burned house? The way over the hill toward the house was wholly in the open. Clean sod, not even a tree. The man on foot could not have been out of sight of us when we rode across the brook and round the brow of the hill, but he was out of sight. We sat there in our saddles and searched the land, lying smooth and open before us. There was the burned house below, bare as by hand, and the meadows all open to the eye. A rabbit could not have hidden. Where was the rider of that worn-out, sleeping horse? Abner sat there looking down at this clean, open land. A man could not vanish into the air. He could not hide in a wisp of blue grass. He could not cross three hundred acres of open country while his track in a running brook remained muddy. He could have reached the brow of the hill and perhaps gone down to the house, but he could not have passed the meadows and the pasture field beyond without wings on his shoulders. The morning was on its way. The air was like lotus. The sun, still out of sight, was beginning to gild the hilltops. I looked up. Away on the knob at the summit of the hill there was an old graveyard. That was a curious custom, to put our dead on the highest point of land. A patch of sunlight lay on this village of the dead, and as I looked, a thing caught my eye. I turned in the saddle. I saw something flash up there, Uncle Abner. Flash, he said, like a weapon. Glitter, I said, and I caught up the bridle rein. But Abner put his hand on the bit. Quietly, Martin, he said. We will ride slowly round the hill, as though we were looking for the cattle, and go up behind that knob. There is a ridge there, and we shall not be seen until we come out on the crest of the hill beside the graveyard. We rode idly away, stopping now and then like persons at their leisure. But I was afire with interest. All the way to the crest of the hill the blood skipped in my veins. The horses made no sound on the carpet of green sod, and when we came out suddenly beside the ancient graveyard I fully expected to see there a brace of robbers, like some picture in a story, with bloody cloths around their heads and pistols in their belts, or two bewhiskered pirates before a heap of pieces of eight. On the tick of the clock I was disillusioned, however. A man who had been kneeling by a grave rose. I knew him in the twinkling of an eye. He was the sheriff, and in the twinkling of an eye I knew why he was there and I was covered with confusion. His father was buried in this old graveyard. It was a land where men concealed their feelings as one conceals the practice of a crime, and one would have stolen his neighbor's goods before he would have intruded upon the secrecy of his emotions. I pulled up my horse and would have turned back, pretending that I had not seen him, for I was ashamed. But Abner rode on, and presently I followed in amazement. If Abner had cursed his horse or warbled a ribald song, I could not have been more astonished. I was ashamed for myself, and I was ashamed for Abner. How could he ride in on a man who had just got up from beside his father's grave? My mind flashed back over Abner's life to find a precedent for this conspicuous, inconsiderate act, but there was nothing like it in all the history of the man. When the sheriff saw us, he wiped his face with his sleeve and went white as a sheet. And under my own shirt I felt and suffered with the man. I should have gone white like that if one had caught me thus, and in my throat I choked with bitterness at Abner. Had his heart tilted, and every generous instinct been emptied out of it? Then I thought he meant to turn the thing with some word that would cover the man's confusion and save his feelings inviolate, but he shocked me out of that. 
Smallwood, said Abner, you have come back. The man blinked as though the sun were in his eyes. He had not yet regained the mastery of himself. Yes, he said. And why do you come, said Abner. A flush of scarlet spread over the man's white face. And do you ask me that? he cried. It is the tomb of my father. Your father, said Abner, was an upright man. He lived in the fear of God. I respect his tomb. I thank you, Abner, replied the man. I honor my father's grave. You honor it late, said Abner. Late, echoed Smallwood. Late, said Abner. The man spread out his hands with a gesture of resignation. You mean that my misfortune has dishonored my father? No, said Abner, that is not what I mean. By a misfortune no man can be dishonored, neither his father nor his father's father. What is it you mean, then? said the man. Smallwood, said Abner, is it not before you? Where you in your ownership allowed the fence around this grave to rot, I have rebuilt it. And where you have allowed the weeds to grow up, I have cut them down. It was the truth. Abner had put up a fence and had cleaned the graveyard. Only the myrtle and sinkfoil covered it. I thought the sheriff would be ashamed at that, but his face brightened. It is a disaster, Abner, that brings a man back to his duties to the dead. In prosperity we forget, but in poverty we remember. The master, replied Abner, was not very much concerned about the dead, nor am I. The dead are in God's keeping. It is our duties to the living that should move us. Do you remember, Smallwood, the story of the young man who wished to go and bury his father? I do, said Smallwood, and I have always held him in honor for it. And so, too, the master would have held him, but for one thing. What thing? said Smallwood. That the story was an excuse, replied Abner. I saw the light go out of the man's face and his lips tremble, and then he said what I was afraid he would say. Abner, he said, if you are determined to gouge this thing out of me, why, here it is. I cannot bear to live in this community any longer. I am ashamed to see those upon whom I have brought misfortune. El Nathan Stone and your brother Rufus and Adam Greathouse, I have made up my mind to leave the country forever. But I wanted to see the place where my father was buried before I went, because I shall never see it again. You don't understand how a man can feel like that. But I tell you, when a man is in trouble, he will remember his father's roof if he is living, and his father's grave if he is dead. I was so mortified before this confession that Abner's heartless manner had forced out of the man that I reached over and caught my uncle by the sleeve. My horse stood by Abner's chestnut, and I hoped that he would yield to my importunity and ride on. But he turned in his saddle and looked first at me, and then down upon the sheriff. Martin, he said, thinks we ought to leave you to your filial devotions. It is a credit to the child's heart, replied the man, and a rebuke to you, Abner. It is a pity that age robs us of charity. Abner put his hands on the pommel of his saddle and regarded the sheriff. I have read St. Paul's epistle on charity, he said, and after a long reflection I am persuaded that there exists a greater thing than charity, a thing of more value to the human family. Like charity, it rejoiceth not in iniquity, but it does not bear all things, or believe all things, or endure all things, and unlike charity, it seeketh its own. Do you know what thing I mean, Smallwood? I will tell you. It is justice. Abner, replied the man, 
I am in no humor to hear a sermon. Those who need a sermon, said Abner, are rarely in the humor to hear it. Abner, cried the man, you annoy me. Will you ride on? Presently, replied Abner, when we have all talked together a little further. You are about to leave the country. I shall perhaps never see you again, and I would have your opinion upon a certain matter. Well, said the man, what is it? It is this, said Abner. You appear to entertain great filial respect, and I would ask you a question touching that regard. What ought to be done with a man who would use a weapon against his father? Well, he ought to be hanged, said Smallwood. And would it change the case, said Abner, if the father held something which the son had entrusted to him, and would not give it up because it belonged to another, and the son, to take it, should come against his father with an iron in his hand? The sheriff's face became a land of doubt, of suspicion, of uncertainty, and, I thought, of fear. Abner, cried the man, I do not understand. Will you explain it? I will explain this thing which you do not understand, replied Abner, when you have explained a thing which I do not understand. Why was it that you came here last night and again this morning? That was two visits to your father's grave within six hours. I do not understand why you should make two trips and one upon the heels of the other. For a moment the man did not reply. Then he spoke. How do you know that I was here last night? Did you see me come, or did another see and tell you? I did not see you, replied Abner, nor did anyone tell me that you came, but I know it in spite of that. And how do you know it, said Smallwood. I will tell you, said Abner. On the road this morning I observed two horse tracks leading this way. They both turned in at the same crossroads, and they both came to this place. One was fresh, the other was some hours old. It is easy to tell that on a clay road. I compared those two tracks and the third returning track, and presently I saw that they had been made by the same horse. Abner stopped and pointed down toward the beech woods. Moreover, he continued, your horse, hidden among those trees, is worn out and asleep. Now you live only some twenty miles away. That journey this morning would not have so fatigued your horse that he would sleep on his feet, but to make two trips, to go all night, to travel sixty miles, would do it. The sheriff's head did not move, but I saw his eyes glance down. The glance did not escape Abner, and he went on. I saw the crowbar in the grass there some time ago, he said. But what has the crowbar to do with your two trips? I, too, saw now the iron bar. It was the thing that had glittered in the sun. The man threw back his shoulders. He lifted his face and stood up. There came upon him the pose and expression of one who steps out at last, desperately, into the open. Yes, he said, I was here last night. It was my horse that made those tracks in the road, and it is my horse that is hidden in the woods now, and that is my crowbar in the grass. And do you want to know why I made those two trips, and why I brought that crowbar, and why I hid my horse? I'll tell you, since there is no shame in you, and no decent feeling, and you are determined to have it. You can't understand, Abner, because you have a heart of stone, but I tell you, I wanted to see my father's grave before I left the country forever. I was ashamed to meet the people over here, and so I came in the night. When I got here, I saw that the heavy slab over my father's grave had settled down and was wedged in against the coping. I tried to straighten it up, but I could not. Well, what would you have done, Abner? Gone away and left your father's tomb a ruin? No matter what you would have done. I went back twenty miles and got that crowbar and came again to lift and straighten the stone over my father's grave before I left it. And now will you ride on and leave me to finish my work and go? 
Smallwood, Abner said presently, how do you know that your house was robbed before it was burned? Might it not be that the county revenues were burned with the house? I'll tell you how I know that, Abner, replied the man. The revenues of the county were all in my deerskin saddle pockets under my pillow. When I awoke in the night, the house was dark and filled with smoke. I jumped up, seized my clothes, which were on a chair by the bed, and ran downstairs. But first I felt under the pillow for my saddle pockets, and they were gone. But Smallwood, said Abner, how can you be certain that the money was stolen out of your saddle pockets if you did not find them? I did find them, replied the sheriff. I went back into the house and got the saddle pockets and brought them out, and they were empty. That was a brave thing to do, Smallwood, said Abner to go back into a burning house filled with smoke and dark. You could have had only a moment. You speak the truth, Abner, replied the sheriff. I had only a moment. The house was a pot of smoke, but the money was in my care, Abner. There was my duty, and what is a man's life against that? I saw Abner's back straighten, and I heard his feet grind on the iron of his stirrups. And now, Smallwood, he said, and his voice was like the menace of a weapon. Will you tell me how it was possible for you to go into a house that was dark and filled with smoke, and thus quickly, in a moment, find those empty saddle pockets unless you knew exactly where they were? I saw that Abner's question had impaled the man as one pierces a fly through with a needle, and like a fly the man in his confusion fluttered. Smallwood, said Abner, you are a thief and a hypocrite and a liar and like all liars, you have destroyed yourself. You not only stole this money, but you tried to make your father an accomplice in that robbery. To conceal it, you hid it in this dead man's house, and behold, the dead man has held his house against you. When you came here last night to carry away the money, you found that the slab over your father's grave had fallen and wedged itself in against the limestone coping, and you could not lift it, and so you went back for that crowbar." But who knows, you thief, what influence, though he be dead, a just man has with God. I came in time to help your father hold his house, and against his son with a weapon in his hand. I saw the man cringe and writhe and shiver, as though he were unable to get out of his tracks. Then the power came to him, and he vaulted over the fence and ran. He ran in fear down the hill and across the brook and into the wood, and a moment later he came out with his tired horse at a gallop. Abner looked down from the hilltop on the flying thief, but he made no move to follow. Let him go, he said, for his father's sake. We owe the dead man that much. Then he got down from his horse, thrust the crowbar under the slab over the grave, and lifted it up. Beneath it were the sheriff's deerskin saddle pockets and the stolen money. Welcome to the very first episode of Mysterious Mountains. I'm West Virginia Humanities Council Program Officer Kyle Warmack, and I hope you'll continue joining us as we take journeys into parts of West Virginia you may not have known were there. You see, with each new season of Mysterious Mountains, we're going to explore a different imaginary West Virginia. Imaginary, but somehow real. Real, 
because even though authors and artists work from the imagination to bring us characters and settings and situations that may have never existed, they form a very tangible part of our experience with the place. How many times have you wanted to travel somewhere, specifically because a book or movie took place at that location? Whether you've been to, say, Los Angeles or not, your perception of the city is probably influenced just as much by the movies and TV shows you've seen about it as what you see when you're there. When you think of Prince Edward Island in Canada, you probably picture it more through the Anne of Green Gables books than you can actually imagine the real place. First and foremost, this podcast is about that kind of exploration. Which is why for the next 11 episodes, you're going to hear a number of the Uncle Abner stories of Harrison County author Melville Davison Post, taking you back to an imaginary West Virginia of the 1850s before the Civil War. It's a place and time we don't often see in literature. You're going to hear a lot less of me over the next few episodes, though, not only because I don't read every story, but also because we want to spend most of our time talking to people who can share more insight into the text. Which is why every episode but this one will feature interviews with scholars and experts on all kinds of topics found in the stories. We're talking about distinguished Romani scholars in Texas educating us about gypsy stereotypes in literature. Professors in France talking about how they use Uncle Abner in the classroom. Not to mention folks from across West Virginia like the Harrison County Historical Society, Wesleyan College up in Buchanan, or even West Virginia State University. The point is this is going to be a real neat trip. And it's only going to get better as we jump into future seasons and range through West Virginia folk tales and ghost stories, maybe even science fiction or cryptids like the Mothman and the Flatwoods Monster. If you like what we're doing, you should subscribe to the podcast and follow the West Virginia Humanities Council on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Enough about us, though. It's time to meet our author, Melville Davison Post. In 1930, Melville Davison Post took a fall from the back of his favorite polo horse. A few days later, he died at the age of 61. For three decades before his death, the Harrison County-born lawyer-turned-author had been a household name. His body of work included over 250 short stories and several novels, nearly all of them in the mystery genre. His short mystery stories and non-fiction articles about law and meditations on writing were featured regularly in the Saturday Evening Post, Metropolitan Magazine, and a variety of other widely circulated mainstream publications. We know he was widely read and appreciated because in the mid-1920s, he signed a contract with American Magazine for five short stories at $5,000 apiece, a sum equal to about $70,000 per story today. Wouldn't you like to make over a quarter of a million dollars for five short stories? On top of that, he no doubt raked in royalties from his 1918 collection, Uncle Abner, Master of Mysteries, which remained in print continuously for 20 years at full price. Despite being a famous writer in his day, famous enough to be introduced to the Queen of England, what's actually known about Melville Davison Post is kind of slim. There's only one full biography of him, published in 1973 by author Charles A. Norton. It's called Melville Davison Post, 
man of many mysteries. A play on words meant to convey that not only did Post write a lot of mysteries, he left behind just as many when it came to his own inner life. So much so that only a quarter of Norton's book is actually a biography. The rest of it is an analysis of Post's writings. So what do we know about this elusive man? We know he was born on April 19, 1869, almost four years exactly after the end of the Civil War, and only six years after West Virginia became a state in the middle of that war. His family had a frame house on Raccoon Run near Romines Mills, a tiny settlement along the banks of Elk Creek, some ten miles southeast of the growing town of Clarksburg. He was the second of five children, three sisters and two brothers in total, born to Florence May Davison and Ira Carper Post. His family origins are worth mentioning, since they definitely made their way into his writing. His maternal great-grandfather, Daniel Davison, lived in Harrison County from 1773 onward and served as a major in the colonial militia during the American Revolution. Davison owned much of the land where the city of Clarksburg would eventually flourish and slowly added more acreage to his holdings, which, in turn, improved his burgeoning cattle business. If all that seems like ancient history, it wasn't to Melville. Not only did his great-grandmother Prudence live until Melville was seven years old, but the author eventually included his ancestors in several Uncle Abner stories. His grandfather, Nathaniel Davison, actually makes a cameo in the story Naboth's Vineyard, which we'll hear in a later episode. And the land that belonged to Daniel Davison is mentioned in multiple stories, always referred to as the Crown's Grant, or similarly referenced as a land grant from King George III of England. Through the decades, this story about King George has stuck, perhaps through the sheer number of times Melville said it and wrote it. Funny thing is, though, according to David Houchin at the Clarksburg Public Library, there's nothing to back this up. No surviving evidence that King George ever gave Daniel Davison anything. His descendants after him continued to be prominent in Virginia affairs and to hold the lands granted by the king. Not a word of truth in it anywhere. According to Houchin, it's most likely that Davison got his land the old-fashioned way, by showing up and staying on it until he was designated the legal owner, like many early pioneers. Whether the unlikely story of a land grant from the sovereign monarch of England originated with Melville or was passed down to him from a relative is unknown. Sometime between 1876 and 1878, the Post family built a new house nearby. Big, 13 rooms, clad in locally made brick with walnut paneling that Melville's mother named Templemore. It's still there today, a private residence, though no longer owned by the Post family. It is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It's here among the shadowy hills, bubbling creeks, and unfurling pastures that Melville Davison Post came of age. Though his family was large and by this time comparatively wealthy, his father Ira could hardly run their sprawling cattle operation by himself. Nor did he. Eliza Perkins was a black woman who had previously been a slave for the family of Melville's mother Florence before and during the Civil War. West Virginia was originally part of Virginia, of course, and a slaveholding state, even if the practice was not as common, in the rugged mountains. After the war, Eliza chose to stay on as a paid servant with Florence and her new husband, Ira, and was the nanny to their children as the family grew. The character of Liza in the Uncle Abner mystery, The Devil's Tools, is probably an homage to her. Eliza's son, Orange Judd Perkins, was about the same age as Melville, and they became lifelong friends. A strong, towering presence, Orange Judd also makes a literary cameo 
in Post's 1901 novel Dwellers in the Hills as the character of, well, Judd. In both the case of Eliza and that of her son Orange Judd, their representation in Melville's writing is a bit complicated, perhaps in the same way that these meaningful people in Post's life were not only intimates, but also his servants. Their portraits in his stories are sympathetic and generally less demeaning than many black stereotypes that populate the literature of the day, but it doesn't change the fact that black characters have little or no agency if they even manage to appear at all in Post's stories. And though the Uncle Abner stories take place before the Civil War, Post never once refers to any of the black characters in the background as slaves, even though there is little doubt that most would have been in antebellum Virginia. The upright and moral character of Uncle Abner only ever addresses the topic of slavery once in 22 stories. Even in this single instance, he mutedly echoes the somewhat Jeffersonian view that the institution would be dissolved in God's good time. It's a pretty lukewarm stance from a character otherwise all too willing to call down fire and brimstone on the wicked. Post maintained this ambivalence, or willful omission, throughout his work, even though he grew up during the revolutionary days of Reconstruction in the South and began writing in earnest as white supremacist violence gripped the country in the 1890s, in many cases unraveling the civil rights only just gained for black citizens during the immediate years following the Civil War. We may never know exactly why, though some of his closest companions were black, he chose to maintain this studious silence. But that was all still in the future. In the 1870s and 1880s, as far as we know, young Melville was riding horses, adventuring into the hills, chasing the waters of Natty Creek with orange Judd Perkins, helping his stern religious father Ira with the cattle, and going to school. Until the age of 14, Melville attended Raccoon School, a small elementary school near his home. But when he was 16, his circle expanded when he enrolled at an institution called the Academy in Buchanan. In 1887, he could be found even further from home, beginning his studies at West Virginia University in Morgantown, where he became well-known in public speaking and debates. This lay the groundwork for his graduate degree in law, with which he left the school in 1892. All through his youth, Melville displayed great love of writing. But it was during these next few years as a lawyer that his passion was to crystallize into the talent that vaulted him to prominence. After graduating with his degree at the age of 23, he joined the law firm of John A. Howard, the prosecuting attorney of Ohio County, in Wheeling. Within two years of moving to the northern panhandle of West Virginia, Post's correspondence shows that he was beginning to look for opportunities to be published. That day would come in 1896, when the young lawyer's experience was parlayed into a collection of seven short stories, The Strange Schemes of Randolph Mason, published by G.P. Putnam's Sons of New York, who were to release many of his major works for the rest of his life. The somewhat sinister character of Randolph Mason is also a lawyer, and an unorthodox protagonist for the era. He is arrogant, unscrupulous, and willing to help any client get out of a bind even if he knows they have committed murder. The sensationalism caused among Victorian-era audiences by Mason's moral bankruptcy might have contributed to the character's success, but the primary reason the stories have endured seems to be their... relevance. You see, Melville Davison Post didn't just make up a bunch of tabloid fodder court cases. He lifted them from actual situations particularly those where a legal loophole could be exploited by those determined to escape justice. In the introduction to the book, Post wrote, The high ground of the field of crime has not been explored. It has not even been entered, 
the bookstalls have been filled to weariness with tales based upon plans whereby the detective or ferreting power of the state might be baffled. But prodigious marvel! No writer has attempted to construct tales based upon plans whereby the punishing power of the state might be baffled. In short, other writers had previously concentrated on how a criminal might escape being found out, but Post was here to show how a criminal might avoid being convicted, even when all the evidence proved they had committed the crime. A case in point is perhaps the most famous Randolph Mason story, the Corpus Delicti. Many states' laws at the time required the presence of a corpse to prove a murder had been committed, so Randolph Mason gets a confessed murderer off the hook by advising him to dissolve the body of his victim in a bath full of chemicals. No body, no crime. The villain gets off scot-free. This is a loophole, of course, that has since been closed. Post was criticized for the collection's seeming amorality, but he responded that he was merely pointing out real escape hatches criminals could use to elude the law. Either way, Randolph Mason was successful enough to get two more short story collections, one in 1897 and another in 1908, and the famous TV lawyer Perry Mason was named after him decades later. We won't get bogged down too much in Post's publishing history, but it's worth mentioning that what came after the first two Randolph Mason books in 1901 is considered his most personal work. His first and most successful novel, Dwellers in the Hills, brings the reader to the landscape of Post's youth and draws heavily from his own life and experiences, so much so that several characters are actually named after their real counterparts. The affection he brought to the novel's West Virginia settings showed itself again ten years later when he began writing the Uncle Abner stories. Also in 1901, Melville met the woman who was to become his wife. He encountered Anne Bloomfield Gamble Schoolfield, or Bloom, as she was called, on an ocean voyage to Europe. She was a vivacious socialite from Roanoke, Virginia, and they were married in mid-1903, celebrating their honeymoon with another trip to Europe, where they spent most of it in Glencoe, Scotland. As it happens, Glencoe features prominently in a story you'll hear later in the podcast, The Concealed Path. By the time Bloom became pregnant in the summer of 1904, the couple had moved to Grafton, West Virginia, following Melville's transition to a new law firm there. Their son, Ira Carper Post II, named for Melville's father, was born in their home on February 5, 1905. But 18 months later, typhoid fever claimed his life. The couple was devastated. They closed up their Grafton home a month later and journeyed again to Europe, never to return to that house and never to have another child. They were frequently guests of various nobles and eventually presented to King Edward and Queen Anne of England. For about two years, until 1908, Melville and Bloom bounced between Europe, New England resort towns, Bloom's sister's home in Pennsylvania, and Melville's childhood home at Templemore. Though their social habits were lavish, Melville was a spendthrift in other ways, usually absconding with stationery from his places of employment and association. As a result, Many of his handwritten drafts are scribbled on letterhead from his law office, lumber companies, or the Democratic Congressional Executive Committee of the 1st West Virginia District, since he was a prominent member of the local Democratic Party. After an extended hiatus from writing, from about 1901 to 1907, Post picked up the pen seriously again in 1908. And on June 3, 1911, the Saturday Evening Post published what would become the first Uncle Abner story, The Broken Stirrup Leather, 
later retitled The Angel of the Lord when it was included in his 1918 collection Uncle Abner, Master of Mysteries. The 1910s were the period of Melville Davison Post's greatest success. He wrote 18 Uncle Abner stories and dozens more about other detectives like Captain Walker of the Secret Service, Monsieur Jean Quill, Prefect of Police of Paris, and Sir Henry Marquis, the sleuth of St. James's Square in London. In 1914, he and Bloom built a house based on their love of the Swiss countryside, which they called the Chalet, made of local stone and Oregon redwood. The woodwork was handmade and exquisite. This, by the way, is when Post nicked stationery from the lumber company doing the work. The home was close to his childhood stomping grounds, on a hill overlooking a valley through which ran the familiar waters of Natty Creek. No doubt this house would be unique in West Virginia even today, but unfortunately it burned down 17 years after Post's death in 1947. Despite these encouraging developments, however, the 1910s were also tough years for the author. In 1914, Post's mother died at the ripe old age of 71. Five years later, Bloom caught pneumonia in a Philadelphia hospital while undergoing treatment for skin cancer and also passed away. Melville never quite recovered, and his grief was compounded in 1923 by the death of his father, Ira. From Bloom's death in 1919 onward, Post increasingly retreated from public life, preferring to spend time at the chalet with Orange Judd Perkins, hosting games on his personal polo field, and taking visits from friends and family. He owned several cars, but supposedly wasn't very good at driving them, and so usually preferred to ride the twelve miles into Clarksburg on horseback. He continued to publish stories, but at a much reduced rate of production. He did get out four new Uncle Abner stories, but his physical condition was beginning to suffer possibly due to a drinking problem, since later examination showed him to have cirrhosis of the liver. Finally, on June 10, 1930, he suffered a fall from his favorite polo horse, Margot, while riding her around the grounds of the chalet. He was rushed to St. Mary's Hospital near Clarksburg, where one of the physicians attending to him was his brother, Sidney. Despite blood transfusions and other efforts, he died on June 23, 1930, at the age of 61. When he died... Most of his estate went to two of his nieces. Orange Judd Perkins received a stipend of $250 per year for life, though he was only to outlive Melville by 13 years. Post's mysterious lifelong friend and servant is buried next to his mother Eliza in the small cemetery of Monroe Chapel in Romines Mills near the banks of Natty Creek. Melville Davison Post is buried in Elkview Masonic Cemetery in Clarksburg near his wife Bloom his infant son Ira, and his parents. His literary legacy, most especially through Uncle Abner, has lived on through the years, republished in numerous mystery and detective anthologies. Up through the 1950s and even into the 1970s, he was frequently listed as one of the most important American authors in the genre. In 1977, for the first time, all of the Uncle Abner stories were published in a single omnibus edition, The Complete Uncle Abner by the University of California, with extensive appendices and previously published essays on post by critics Grant Overton and legendary mystery writer Anthony Boucher. In 2015, the West Virginia Humanities Council republished Uncle Abner, Master of Mysteries, with West Virginia University Press, featuring a new introduction by Huntington, West Virginia-born author Craig Johnson, writer of the best-selling Longmire Mysteries. Post's best work is admired for its immaculate construction, 
a commitment to swift, concise plot-building, with hardly a wasted word from beginning to end, and his clear, evocative prose. The stern, devout Uncle Abner, who many think is based on his father Ira, is considered a trailblazer in the mystery genre, one of the first influential religious detectives. The world of the Abner stories is somehow uniquely Melville Davison Post, uniquely West Virginian, and uniquely American all at the same time. He brings a particular texture out in his portrayal of the West Virginia countryside that we don't often see, perhaps born of his strong affection and attachment to those Harrison County hills. Maybe biographer Charles Norton said it best. He wrote stories with the authentic atmosphere and background of England, Scotland, France, Belgium, Switzerland, and other exotic places. But while such scenes have a definite place in his writing, he never forgot his birthplace. Post never removed his roots from West Virginia and returned there constantly, not only because it was home, but because he knew it to be the most beautiful of all. For more episodes of Mysterious Mountains, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit wvhumanities.org for links to our podcast page and more content. You can also follow the West Virginia Humanities Council on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The West Virginia Humanities Council is the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The council is an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit supported by the NEH, the state of West Virginia, contributions from the private sector, and people like you. Its statewide mission is to support a vigorous educational program in the humanities across West Virginia. This audio production of Mysterious Mountains is copyright 2021 by the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme song is Appalachian Impressions Movement 2, A Train Through Snowy Thurmond by Matthew Jackford, used with permission. <laughs>